Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. COVID-19. It's infected more than 130,000 people worldwide. Over 5,000 people have died. Several countries are declaring states of emergency, including reportedly the United States, which has, as you know, just banned flights from Europe. The new epicentre of the pandemic, Dr. Chris Smith, consultant virologist at Cambridge University, is with us now. Hi, Chris. Thanks for coming on again. It's a pleasure. It's great to be back. And as you say, I'm considering asking for a residency. Yes. Well... You'd want to come to New Zealand. We're looking pretty good compared with the UK. No, no, I mean on your programme. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. a delightful programme well, it and it's a delight there. to take part. It could start there. I uh, see so your <laughs> Prime Minister has postponed the May local elections, among other things. Yeah, well, I was I was actually at New Broadcasting House, which is where most of the big network BBC radio comes from, down in London, yesterday evening. And I was asked to take part in one of our uh, flagship news programmes, which is PM on Radio 4. And the idea was that I would be there, we would listen to the press conference from Boris Johnson and then analyse their announcements across the programme. But it only began, literally, the press conference began just as the programme went to air. So we were, you know, grasping, grabbing bits and pieces of the programme to then talk about. But the key messages from that were, we acknowledge that we cannot contain this. We now are into the so-called delay phase where we aim to slow down the progression of the infection through the population and at the same time uh, learn more about this, both from our own experience and the experience of other countries, of course, all the time sharing data, doing research into various avenues that might lead to a way that we can help people who are going to catch this. But at the same time, also reassuring people that 99% of people are just going to recover from this. About 1% might come off worse. This is the the UK strategy, the herd immunity strategy it's been described. Is that how you see it? Well, I am supportive of what they're trying to do because lots of other countries have started to put in place fairly draconian processes They're shutting schools, they're shutting universities, there are various other industries that have shut down, mass gatherings have been cancelled and so on. And to a certain extent, this is not informed by evidence. This is informed by an element of Me Too politics. The last time I was on this programme, New Zealand had just declared its first case in country and there was then panic buying of bog roll in the supermarket. This is what's going on in other countries, an element of political Me Too they're doing it, so we should do it. And the same pressure is being brought to bear on politicians here. And in fact, I, I do actually acknowledge that the, the science and the 
medical data that's being brought to bear on this is is important and and I think they're doing a good job because what they're actually doing is saying we're learning all the time we know we're going to have to change our strategy we're going to have to update it but at the moment our approach is that we will have a proportionate response to these things and we will we will introduce relevant things when it's appropriate to do so and informed by the evidence and Patrick Valance who's our chief scientific officer said yesterday if we were to shut the schools and do so in a meaningful way in other words to make a dent in this pandemic as it progresses through the UK they'd be shut for 13 weeks. According to one journalist description of your government's strategy it's to allow the virus to pass through the entire population so that you acquire herd immunity but at a much delayed speed so that those who suffer the most acute symptoms are able to receive the medical support they need and the health service isn't overwhelmed. Would you agree with that description? Yeah, um, one start, the starting point for this is that we are all, all of us, susceptible to this infection, barring the very small number of people, relatively speaking, so far who have had the infection. Yeah. Because by the time you've had it and cleared it, you're then immune. But the vast majority of the world population is susceptible. Therefore, we're all going to catch it at some point. The majority of us are going to catch it in this first wave as it spreads through the world. And the current predictions are that maybe 80% of, say, countries like the UK, 80% of the population will catch it. Now, in the course of that happening, the people who catch it will become immune to it. And the idea is that if they become immune to it, it's much harder for it to then circulate aggressively again through the population. So we want a sort of staged establishment of herd immunity. That's what herd immunity means. It means that the vast majority of people are immune to something. And this means that the, the distance, for want of a better phrase, from an uninfected individual to another uninfected individual is too great for the virus to jump between the two. So if it gets into one uninfected individual and makes them sick, it's, it's too separate or too far, too remote to another case, another uninfected person for it to continue to spread. And that's the whole premise of herd immunity. The idea is to establish that herd immunity, but to do it slowly. Because if we allow this to suddenly snowball, what will happen is that we'll get a very, very dramatic peak in cases, because that's what's happened everywhere else. So we're pretty confident that that's how this would play out and it would grow exponentially. And then when you've got a very large number of cases, then the people who are in the minority, that 1% who are, or, or fewer, who are going to need more serious help from a health service, there's lots of them all at once. And that goes beyond the coping capacity of the health service. So what the aim is to do is to blunt that spike so that it's smeared over a longer time period. So the arrival of cases, the arrival of those 1% that need more help occurs more slowly and they don't exceed the threshold at which health services can't cope. Meanwhile, That's the, the strategy. The World now Health Organization, though, Chris, the World Health Organization's advice seems to be to throw everything at it, to break the chains of transmission. Yeah, and th that, that's true up to a point, but it's not as simple as that, because one could say, OK, we'll shut all the schools. But if you do that then who looks after the children? Because they're at home now, so is mum and dad going to come and look after the kids? Because if they're doctors or nurses or they do other important emergency service work, for example, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. Those, those parents are now not available to provide that very important service. 
Or could you ask, say, grandparents to come and look after the children? If the grandparents came, they're vulnerable individuals. They're at higher risk if they get caught. So what you're doing is this toxic combination of marrying someone who you're trying to protect with an individual who you regard as a super spreader and you've shut their school because you regard them as a high risk for, for spreading this far and wide. So you can see how there are ramifications. There are also a significant number of children who don't get fed properly at home. They rely on their school meals to actually make sure they're properly nourished. And if their school closes, there's a chance that a significant number of people might end up malnourished for the time that their oh school Lord. is closed. There's Those all... are just a few examples of how there, <laughs> the... there are unforeseen yes. consequences of something that sounds simple and mathematically makes great sense. But then when you begin to unpick this, it's much more complicated in practice. Um, in New Zealand, there are calls for thermal testing at international airports and... Uh, the gathering should be restricted. We have a big, uh, the WOMAD festival that's going ahead this weekend. We have a memorial event for the mosque massacres of a year ago. Um, there are calls for cruise ships to be restricted. Do you think that more restrictions are called for in a situation where we've had only five cases and no fatalities? Well, Let's think about temperature first of all. Now that's very cheap to do, very easy to implement. Is it sensitive and specific? Does it find cases? Not really. For a start, as my wife pointed out, some people are quite crafty because they know that if they get a temperature, they might get into trouble at the airport or they won't be allowed on the flight or they won't be allowed off the flight. So some people just travel with a whole bunch of paracetamol or aspirin and they pop, pop pills all the way along and then when they arrive, their temperature's low. So they escape that way. Also, if you've got a temperature when you get off the aeroplane, OK, you, you might have this. You might have a whole raft of other things. So it's not, a, it's not a specific measure for a start. And it also is the fact that there's an incubation period for this of a median of about five days. And the likelihood of a person's flight coinciding with the time when they suddenly become symptomatic and their fever kicks in is quite low because most people who are healthy get on aeroplanes. They feel okay. They don't get on an aeroplane if they're not feeling very well, unless they're desperate. So, therefore, temperature screening, it's a blunt instrument, very cheap, can catch a few, but probably won't catch very many. So it's, it's, it's probably not to be relied upon as your, as your mainstay. In terms of, of schools, we've said that, you know, if you get cases in schools and children do spread things around, the school year is one of the major determinants of the spread of an infectious disease. Therefore, breaking that cycle can be very valuable when deployed at the right time. Because if, if you deploy this at the wrong time, you end up with the situation I outlined where you have extended school closures and after a while, population compliance with your measures begins to dwindle. So you have to time your intervention so that people will engage with it, get behind it and comply for a period of time which coincides with when the rate of change of the number of cases is going to be maximum. And at that point, you stand the chance of, of thwarting the, the, the sudden upswing in numbers the most. So, that, so I think there is a place for, for having these sorts of measures. In terms of sporting events and going out and going to other things like that, I would argue that, and as one person I think very well put it very well, if you're going to, a, say, a rugby match and you're standing in the open air, breathing fresh air, and okay, there's a bunch of people around you, but you're breathing fresh air, you've got lots of sunlight and nice, windy, hot day, drying out the air, virus particles are not going to survive very long under those circumstances. If we shut the game and everyone goes to the pub and watches it instead, <laughs> those are much more ideal conditions for a virus to spread. So actually, you could argue that, again, you could do something with the best intentions and the consequences which you hadn't foreseen 
could actually exaggerate the risk in a way that he hadn't anticipated. Um, loads of questions coming in. Let me just pick a couple of the of the ones that seem to be the the, the preying on people's minds most. Some people suggest that you cannot, um, you do not become immune once you've had the virus. There are some suggestion, including from China, that you can get it twice. You don't believe that? Well, first, let's look at the immunity question. This is a valid question to ask, because if we're going to go down the route of relying on a vaccine in the future, let's just assume that we can make a vaccine and let's assume that, that uh, it appears to work. That predisposes that when you have this infection, you can make neutralising antibodies that will persist and protect you into the future because that's how a vaccine works. You educate the immune system. This is what something looks like. Make me some antibodies and possibly some white blood cells, depending on the type of vaccine, uh, that can fight this off and keep them hanging around like immune memory so that if I encounter this for real in the future, I know what it looks like and I can fight it off. Now, there is some question over whether this virus will produce a lasting immunological memory, and that needs to be checked. At the moment, we know that people are recovering. We know they're making an effective immune response against this. They get rid of it. But does that persist into the long term? That needs to be checked because if, the, if it doesn't, that could mean that we're going to see more of the circulation of this virus, at least for an appreciable time, and it has implications for making, making um, a vaccine. Of course, that depends on whether it in mutates, people, doesn't it? To an extent. But the, the main thing is that these viruses at the moment are not changing dramatically. There was some data presented, um, and it's, it's not very robust data, suggesting there might be ancestral forms and then new forms of this. And actually people have, have said, on more critical reading, that doesn't appear to be the case. It doesn't appear to, to account for the behaviour of the virus. So we're comfortable at the moment. Although all viruses mutate, they all change as they go along. This one is not changing dramatically at the moment. Most viruses adapt, if they're going to adapt to a new host, they would adapt in such a way that would actually make them more benign. If we look at cases in the past where we've had a virus enter into a population, when it first enters the population, it has a dramatic impact very high case fatality rate because it's not very well optimized for its host and then over time its mortality rate drops as it adapts and and the host adapts to it and it adapts to the host really good example is flu the 1918 spanish flu which was a new jump of a whole new virus into humans for the first time very dramatic mortality within a few few months it was mutating and after that that virus became the circulating strain of human flu that we handed on year after year after year and it was much more benign after that so viruses adapt that's certain but usually not in a, in a malignant direction what is the risk chris that asymptomatic people are spreading the disease and as a consequence we have no control over it and no assessment of That, you can never say in every medicine, and there are some documented reports of people who appear to have been able to pass this on and infect people when they themselves didn't know they were demonstrably infected or ill. So it is certainly possible that a person could be shedding the virus and shedding an infectious dose of the virus before they have overt symptoms, which for this virus are fever in almost all cases and a dry cough in if not at the start of the illness, 
almost all cases by the end of the illness. And then some people get some other vague symptoms like sore throat, runny nose. Some people have had, um, you know, upset tummy, etc. So it's certainly possible that's the case. And the interesting thing here is if you look at the numbers of children that are in the data, there are very few children who actually are reported as having this. Very few children reported as having this and having severe consequences, but not so. There are some. And this leads one to speculate. Perhaps children are catching this, but perhaps they're catching this and it's really benign in them. They don't develop obvious symptoms, but they're probably shedding a lot of virus. Perhaps they're passing it on to other people quite efficiently. So that's something that needs testing, and people are looking quite hard at this now to see if that's the case. Here's a very interesting question. In the last week, says a listener, I've contacted our local vicar about communion administration at churches. The vicar has the view that a silver chalice would disinfect the red wine and therefore not expose communicants to COVID-19 or coronavirus. Any comment? I was talking about this very subject with somebody this week, actually, uh, and the question of how safe is it to, to share a communion cup, for example. And people have looked at this in the past because of the obvious risk from a whole raft of different infections. And actually the risk appears to be extremely low and the risk appears to be higher when the person leans over and coughs on the wafer they give you rather than actually people drinking out of the cup. But I think common sense is sensible here. And if you've got obvious symptoms and you're not feeling well, you probably shouldn't participate anyway but um, I think the jury's out at the moment because no one's actually tested this probably we're going to get some data around this and this particular virus in terms of how long this virus lasts on surfaces like a metallic surface like a silver surface actually the point that you made is is the right one and the lifetime of the virus on that sort of surface is low it's um, a matter of minutes to hours now um, that you might say well that's still and potentially capable of spreading a virus it could be but people were worried about money for example it turns out that if you put your hand in your pocket and you pull out a bunch of coins and you've got some copper coins or copper filled coins in there there's actually quite good at breaking down this this virus and other microorganisms so we think that money is a lower risk than perhaps we had first anticipated perhaps the, the paper money higher risk but coins silver surfaces probably they, they actually do have a natural ability to, to deactivate the, these viruses, but not instantly. Do we understand, you mentioned children, do we understand exactly yet why children are not getting sick? No, and we're looking at this at the moment. I, don't, I say that's the role we, the scientific community, but I was talking to a friend of mine who's a scientist who's interested in this sort of thing this morning about this, and what he was saying to me, and we were speculating, that there is a phenomenon when you catch a range of different types of virus, which is called antibody-dependent enhancement. What this means, and it's most well-known for dengue, which is a totally different type of virus, but it serves as a useful example. Dengue comes in four or possibly five different flavours. They're called serotypes. And then they're called DEN1, DEN2, DEN3, DEN4. Now, if you catch one of them, you're immune to that one you've caught for life. But if you then catch a different one off the back of catching the first one, the next time you have that dengue, instead of having a mild infection, you can have a life-threatening infection. And the reason is that the antibodies you've made against one of the types of dengue actually weaponize the new incoming strain of dengue. 
and they do that by making the virus not deactivated, which is what the antibodies should be doing. They stick to it and make it stickier, making it easier for it to get into certain cell types and then replicate and make more dengue virus. So one tantalising theory is with this new coronavirus, because we know there's a family of coronaviruses, there are four of them that in this family that, that circulate naturally in humans every year, perhaps older people have caught many of these coronaviruses just naturally in their lifetime and had a trivial infection with them, but perhaps they've made some antibodies now, which when you get those antibodies with this new coronavirus, they don't neutralise it and switch it off, but they make it stickier, just like you see with dengue. And perhaps that then causes this phenomenon of antibody-dependent enhancement, which is why older people are more likely to get a more severe infection. And that could account for what's gone on in northern Italy. It could account for what's gone on to an extent in parts of China, where we know the seropositivity, the detection of antibodies against some of these other coronaviruses in the population in this bit of China, is quite high. Damn. Children, on the other hand, haven't had time to catch these yet. Therefore, uh, they don't have those antibodies. Therefore, they just get a trivial infection because they don't have any antibodies to cause this antibody-dependent enhancement. It's just a theory. It's speculation at the moment, but it would be a neat way to explain at least some of the phenomenon. It would, although it's so counterintuitive, isn't it? Uh, somebody says that pneumococcal vaccinations are available at a price um, and you get a pneumococcal dose two months later. Is that a good idea for, say, over 70-year-olds when confronted with the coronavirus risk? The pneumovax is designed to protect people against the, one of the most common causes of pneumonia, which is streptococcus pneumoniae. Now, that's a bacterial infection, and this new virus is a viral infection. So it's a, a very different beast, and the antibodies that you will make, thanks to that vaccine, to defend you against strep pneumo, will not defend you against this new coronavirus. So you would remain susceptible. So it won't prevent you catching it, but one consequence of a viral pneumonia and flu classically does this is that when the virus comes in it damages your airways and airway defenses basically because it grows in the cells that line your airways and breaks them down and then it's a bit like making holes in the castle wall you've now got a breach and the bacteria which naturally live on your airways or which you breathe in and would normally be swept away because your defenses are intact can gain a toehold so you can then get a bacterial superinfection off the back of your prior viral infection. And this is quite common. And classically, people say they get the infection, they feel unwell for a bit, they're just getting better, and then they abruptly appear to get worse again. And with flu, very often our friend Staphylococcus aureus does this. But it's also possible that strep pneumo and other sorts of bacteria could do this too. So if you've been vaccinated against it, that could reduce your risk of getting certain types of these bacterial superinfections if you're unlucky enough to have your airways damaged by this new coronavirus. But I would say that the, the, the benefit would be marginal. All right. Um, various remedies are being suggested, of course, uh, mainly on social media. Is there any scientific evidence that for example, high doses of vitamin C might improve your resistance? Not really, I'm afraid. This has been trotted out for a long time. People are saying if I take mega doses of vitamins, this will in some way boost my immune system. It's a bit like a car engine. 
if your car engine is left to run out of oil, the engine will seize up. If you put a small amount, just the right amount of oil in, the engine will run smoothly. There is no benefit to adding too much oil, and if you overfill the oil, eventually you'll damage your valve guides and you'll rip the guts out of the engine. So too much of a good thing is a bad thing. And vitamins are just like that. So there is no benefit to superdosing yourself with some of these vitamins. It's, it's probably not going to achieve anything. In terms of drugs, though, people are going to the repertoire of agents that we have made for various virus infections of all kinds over the years, and they're asking, do any of them work against this new coronavirus? We've got nothing to lose. Let's either test some of them or explore some of them. They're also looking at other drugs that have been made for other conditions and asking, do any of these look like they might have some kind of benefit in a coronavirus infection and trying all kinds of, of things, including chloroquine, which is traditionally used to combat malaria. And people are now doing trials. They're finding some marginal benefits, at least in a dish. They're doing tests in the dish at the moment to see if, if that will work. There are some clinical trials going on as well. So the, the people are looking for drugs. They haven't found anything that works amazingly yet. Uh, people are asking if it's still advisable to have a flu jab this winter. I think I can answer that. Yes, of course it is. Would you agree? Yes, definitely. Um, the flu vaccine is about 60 to 70% effective in any given year. And to, to be clear what that means, there are, if you have the tetravalent, that's the one with four different strains of flu in it, or the trivalent, that's the one with three, there are, there, you're looking at two different types of flu A, an H1N1 and an H3N2, and then a, a B strain. You could be infected with any one of those in any given year. So even if one of the elements doesn't work as well as we would hope, you've still got the others in there to protect you against those strains. So you'll always get some protection from the flu vaccine. And on average, you're better off having it than not having it. It will certainly give you some protection. And, and flu against is nasty. Flu. And the excess mortality around the world because of flu. Yeah, the excess mortality from flu every year is three quarters of a million people by and large so it's it's always a good idea especially as you get older because just like this coronavirus as you get older you become more vulnerable especially if you have other coexisting health problems so it's i would say it's a very good idea people are arguing with you about your suggestion that only one percent of people with the coronavirus will require serious medical attention you stick by that figure Okay, I simplified. I said 99% will recover. What I actually said was 99% will recover. Okay. The actual numbers, if you look at them, about four-fifths of people will be fine and they'll have a very trivial course. This is what we know from the cases so far. About one-fifth of people will have more severe symptoms and about a fifth of a fifth will have more severe symptoms re requiring quite serious intervention. And the overall rate of people who might not recover, about 1%, based on what we, what we think at the moment the numbers are telling us. Yeah. And it, somebody's, I don't know whether this thought experiment is useful. If we did not have the influenza vaccine, would influenza be as dangerous as this coronavirus, COVID-19? I think probably not. The The real danger from flu comes from pandemic flu. This is, this is um, when I say the real danger, I mean as in something that behaves like this coronavirus. That's about a one in every 30-year occurrence. 
and the big one we all talk about because we've learned a lot about it both from the history and also the virology because people have brought back the 1918 Spanish flu virus to life. They've been able to rebuild that virus in the laboratory and then work out why it was quite so nasty. And the mortality rate from that was 1 or 2%, a bit like this new coronavirus. And again, it was a new virus never seen in the human race before so it circulated very rapidly and infected lots of people very readily and came with a big death toll. The pandemic strains of flu then turn into epidemic strains of flu. What that means is they humanise, they cease to be quite so nasty and they just spread indolently around the world. But because lots of people get infected you still see a very big death toll which is where this three quarters of a million on average in a year comes from because there's a lot of people getting infected with this strain of flu. Now, the flu vaccine, if if, if you were vaccinating uh, those people, perhaps they wouldn't have succumbed, but the vaccine doesn't always work. So I, I think the answer is that even with, you know, even with a flu vaccine, this this is still nastier, this new coronavirus, because of its spreadability. The fact that we're all susceptible to it, it's like a pandemic flu, but worse, because it's very easy to spread and everyone can catch it all at once and it does come with a relatively high mortality rate, like the 1918 flu. Uh, somebody's suggesting that um, animals could carry the disease and pass it on to us. Is that scientifically likely? Of course, the origin of this disease was an animal. Mm -hmm. When we look at the genetic code, you can read the genetics of this new coronavirus and then you can ask, well, where have I seen anything like this before? And there's a big database. When people read genetic codes of things, they publish them on a database which is shared across the world. And you can then ask, well, where have we seen this before? And there is a bat coronavirus, which is more than 96% similar to this circulating coronavirus that we've got. And you then say, well, why is it not 100%? And the answer is that there's a little bit, which is the business end of the virus, on this thing called the spike, which sticks out of the surface of the virus. And there's a certain sequence in there, a certain number of parts of the protein, just a handful of these amino acids, which are actually different from the bat coronavirus. And they're very similar to a, co a coronavirus from a pangolin. So scientists now think that there's been a, a fusion event of some kind or some kind of hybridization or swapping of genetic information between a bat coronavirus that's like the parent and then a bit of a, a pangolin coronavirus which gives it the spike protein that it needs to then jump the species barrier and get into us. So we're now circulating this thing. We could therefore presumably give it back to a pangolin or a, or a bat most probably. So anyone who keeps pet pangolins or pet bats, I suspect they probably could infect those pets. The other big question though is, well, is my dog in danger? Could, could I infect my cat? We know this happened with the swine flu outbreak. There were uh, owners who transmitted the infection to their dogs and cats and, and some of those animals died. There's not much good evidence on this yet. I think there's one case report of a dog. I think it was in South Korea and I don't think the dog had appreciable levels of, of virus. I think the amount of virus they recovered was very low and um, certainly certainly not enough to make the dog appreciably unwell. That may change. I think clarity will emerge around this at the moment, but it's a very important question because if there is an animal reservoir for this, if we then push this back into an animal host, it will make it much more difficult, difficult to control because you've then got a hidden reservoir from which it can periodically keep jumping back into people. 
Um, I see President Trump's declared a national emergency in the United States, and I'll talk to my next guest about that, actually, because he's in New York. Just talk to me, Chris, about the effect of the weather and or climate on the spread of this disease. Yeah, because this is another part of the the strategy that the UK government are banking on, which is that if you can slow down the progression of the of the spread, so that it coincides with the sunnier months of the year, so into spring and summer, you achieve two aims. One is that other winter circulating infections like flu have largely subsided, so therefore pressure on your health service is lower. And two, viruses spread much less well on the whole, in the summer months than in the winter months, when it's nice and sunny. And there are probably a couple of reasons for that. One is that when it's sunny and warm, more people spend more time outside than inside, and they're more likely to keep the windows open, so less viruses will accumulate inside, and you're less likely to therefore encounter an infected person and dwell indoors for an appreciable length of time with them and their viruses, and therefore catch it. There's also an element of the temperature, Viruses will deactivate more quickly if the weather's uh, not ideal for them to circulate when temperatures are warmer and drier. And also there's an element of ultraviolet. There's more UV around in the summertime. And although UVA isn't any good at deactivating the viruses, there might be an effect from UVB, which is a slightly shorter wavelength ultraviolet, more energy in the waves. And that does destroy or at least denature uh, the genetic information in viruses because it produces reactive oxygen forms, which can blast apart the DNA. So those those factors combined mean that viruses spread much less well in summer. So if you can push the surge down into the summer, it might help you to control it better. Does that mean that, that we, in the Southern Hemisphere, can expect to see an increase as winter comes on? It's, I'd say, a certainly a risk, because these viruses like the flu we we know that they come in winter time they usually time their arrival to coincide with winter because the circumstances favor their spread a bit better so you know in some countries where winter and summer the the weather is not so dramatically different as it is in say canada or you know the uk has much milder winters these days but there, there is a very strong difference between summer and winter some countries there isn't such a stark difference but i think that certainly may be an issue in countries where they've been in summer it probably hasn't spread so well as we go into winter maybe you will start to see more spread because of those factors it's good to talk to you chris thank you very much people do appreciate it in fact you've had a number of offers uh, from people to take up a spare room in their house Oh, fantastic. When can I come? Well, it may I might or, need to. If, if we, it may know. or may not involve <laughs> matrimony, so you might have to get your affairs in order oh. before you come. <laughs> they literally would be getting affairs in order, wouldn't they? Wouldn't they? My <laughs> wife would object most strongly, but I it's very kind of might. you to say, and, I'm, and, I, and I cherish the offer, so thank you to whoever made it. Thank you, Chris. Dr Chris Smith, Cambridge University virologist.